1: to the podcast
2: yes welcome back everyone hello justin how's it going Lindsay? it's going pretty well going pretty pretty smooth man looking forward to uh this movie in particular
1: yeah it seemed like the perfect movie to kick off the summer to do days and confused it seems like a seminal summer hang movie to me
2: yeah it's kind of the perfect time it's right when school's gonna get out or roundabout you know just a easy coast right into the summer
1: I'm sure we can say this about every movie we do that we've talked about doing it for a while. But of all the movies we've done, and quite a few, like 70 something movies, this is probably one of the most personal films to me of of ones that we've talked about that had an impact on me in a movie that was like exactly the time that this movie set, like in high school, last year of high school. Like this was a movie that I saw. Many, many, many weekends in a row at uh, the Midnight Show, Uh, there was a theater called uh, Sunset Four, and they would show Days Confused at midnight. And just like in the movie, we would drive around cruising Lindbergh. It was a street that high school kids would just drive around. You'd go up it and then back down and stop at a gas station, talk to people, and then we'd get... Really stoned, and then go see, uh, go see Days of Confused at midnight. This movie really signifies, you know, a moment in time. These characters are at the most free in their lives, and that idea that this could be the best time in their lives before the rules of society and adulthood and responsibility set in post high school.
2: For me, I saw this movie probably about five years, I'd say, after it came out. But one thing that I've noticed about it is like, while well, Justin, you would have been one of the high schoolers. I would have been Mitch, the eighth grader turning into a freshman. And I love that this story so perfectly combines the two. And it's kind of like the Gen X meets right at the beginning of the millennial generation. Before we had names for it, you know, or maybe not Gen X, but millennial. And it's so rare where you have... A movie that um, affects those two age groups. I wish that I had been um, as cool to be like with the Wooderson group. I, you know, I I would have been I would have been with like the the cool nerds. They're not your typical nerds, but I I would have been those guys. Unfortunately, I wasn't the cool kid cruising the strip smoking weed. I wasn't. I wish I would have been, but I was the drama nerd. But this movie still strikes a serious chord with me. One of the
1: things we'll talk about is how this movie is set in the 70s. It is a time period piece, but it at the same time seems so timeless. And I don't know if there's another movie outside of this one that has more of a who's who of faces that went on to become big stars after this movie came out.
2: Even in the background, you really can't sling a dead cat without hitting somebody that's like a famous celebrity now they're everywhere littered in this movie. So of course we're going to talk about the cast and we will hit on a little bit on where this movie came from from the brain of Richard Linklater talking about the beginning, the casting and some difficulties that Linklater went through with the production of this film.
1: The story of this movie is is interesting because it is that time period where, you know, you had a guy who made a movie for it became like a tiny indie hit, and then he goes from making a movie literally almost in his backyard with his friends to helming a $6 million studio-funded movie with producers on hand, Um, but yet he was able to battle the studio left and right all through production to ultimately get at least somewhat of his vision on screen, ultimately get the movie that he wanted, uh, even if it meant uh, ending his career you know, before it even started in Hollywood.
2: Which, of course, he didn't do. His career is still long going today. Um, But there's a lot to unpack with this movie. Even one of the biggest characters in this movie is the never-ending soundtrack. Just, I mean, it's forever present in every single scene of this movie. We'll talk about the soundtrack and, of course, the aftermath of this movie. How did it fare when it came out, and what's the legacy of it today?
1: Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about Days and Confused. Um, after that, we'll get into our picks of the week. Uh, Lindsay, what was your uh, pick this week? Was it a uh, Linklater movie, or did you go with uh, Connection via Actor?
2: I went with uh, an actor. I went with Parker Posey. She has a small role in this film, but it is very memorable if you know Dazed and Confused. And I went with a movie from 97 called Clock Watchers.
1: Oh, that's a good one. Man, I haven't seen that in forever.
2: It's really been since I worked in a video store. And I couldn't figure out why I didn't own this movie and was thinking back on it and remembering so many things about it. And just when I committed to doing this for the pick of the week... I thought, you know, screw it. I'm not renting it. I'm buying this because I know I love this movie. I just don't remember all the specifics of why, and I'm so happy now that I own it. What was your pick of the week this time around, Justin? Uh, My pick, I went
1: with another uh, Texas-based movie, John Sayles' 1996 Lone Star, uh, which also starred um, an early performance post-Days but uh, pre-Time to Kill Matthew McConaughey.
2: Nice. Man, Matthew McConaughey, what, uh, for a guy that entered this movie not having any, if one, if any lines, um, really proved to be the standout amongst everyone in this film.
1: Well, after our picks of the week, we'll get into our Murray moment, but before we go to that first clip from Days of Confused, Lindsay, I know this movie has always uh, gotten a lot of criticism to be very, very
2: light on plot but can you give me your
1: uh, your summation of what this film is
2: about? Well, the events of Dazed and Confused take place in 1976, all surrounding the last day of school and primarily focusing on a group of junior footballers, cheerleaders, and stoners becoming seniors, and the kids graduating from middle school to become freshmen. In a sea of brutal underclassmen hazing and torment, all these different sects of High school students are woven together throughout one night of searching for the party, making out, hanging out, fighting back, and contemplating the future, all while cruising the streets and back roads of Austin, Texas, in this weed-laden, beer-soaked, music-driven, coast through the next 24 hours of the rest of these kids' lives. I like that. It's a lot to talk about when you've got so many different characters and so many sub-stories going on in this film. To say that this is a plotless movie, I don't know. you got to look a little harder than if you think it's a completely plotless movie. I think that with all of Richard Linklater's movies, though, that even if they seem aimless, there's definitely a plot going on. You just have to want to be involved in... All of the discussions that are happening.
1: Yeah, and there always seems to be some, an ever present idea of some sort of like introspective ide- ideology, you know, something yeah. that a character's like dealing with, whether, you know, some sort of like internal crisis. Um, a lot of his movies have that character, and it may seem like it's aimless and, and plotless, but when you're actually listening to what they're talking about and listening to what they're going through, uh, you know, there's a lot more there. And I think that's why a lot of his movies are the the characters in his films. And we've, you know, I've talked about one before, like Suburbia for my pick of the week. They a lot of his movies are characters who are going through something in their life together, and they can not come off being something that might not have universal appeal. But I think there's always something that that someone can connect to in his films. And Days of Confused, I think there's a lot, you know, on surface, it looks like this big party movie and hang movie. But I think that there's so many little moments there that uh, especially as I get older and I've said it all the time. But, you know, I, I can connect to and think like, oh, man, this is uh, that moment where in your life where you can make a change or, you know, you're starting to think about where, where you came from and where you don't want to go.
2: I'm always a big fan of movies that are all just talking and conversations and dazed and confused is one where even if you're someone that's not into that style of movie, it is so visually compelling. And I mean, it being kind of this timeless semi period piece, and everybody's really pretty too. But putting that with all of this dialogue that is changing every five minutes, there's no way that you can't be entertained with this movie
1: this movie you know people say well there's no plot i think we're just used to movies where there's all this exposition about the plot you know yeah you're you're, you're yeah. hearing about what the plot is you're not necessarily seeing it all the time and this movie doesn't have those trappings there's not there there's exposition about what these characters are going through not what the plot is or where they have to go you know that sort of thing exactly so let's get into our first clip from Dazed and Confused, and then we'll be back. We'll talk about it. Oh, okay. Let me out. Hey, Slater, you fucking me!
0: Give me drugs, man. Get some from your mother, man. Yeah, we just banged your mother. OK. Fuck you, dickhead.
1: Nice, man.
0: <laughs> God, man of the woods, what's going on? God, I haven't seen you in so long. My man, what has happened? Long time. No see. <laughs> yes, sir. What have you been up to? Same old shit, man. Yeah? Working for the city. Working, man, huh? Been thinking about getting back in school, though, man. Back in J.C., or something like that? Yeah, man. I mean, that's where all the girls are, right? Same. <laughs> but on the other hand, man, I just as soon keep working, keep a little change in my pocket. Yeah? Wait. Rather than spend my time listening to some dipshit who doesn't know what the hell he's talking about anyway. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> So you're a freshman, right? Yeah. So tell me, man, how's this year's crop of freshman chicks looking? Would well, you gonna end up in jail sometime really soon? I know that fact. No, man. Yeah. No, I'll tell you. Yeah. That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, they do.
1: When I think of movies that get the teenage experience right, the high school experience right, that list is pretty small. There's certainly movies that I truly love, like Breakfast Club and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, though I feel like the kids in those movies feel so much more mature and smarter. Where Dazed Infused was a new kind of high school comedy for me, even though it took place in a, in a different time period, it's one of those films that has lasting appeal because... The situations of the teenagers and, and life experiences that are dealing with are very very relatable, and there was a lot of cross pollination where it wasn't there wasn't such a hard definition of here are the here are the jocks here are the nerds here are the burnouts a guy who was a quarterback of the football team would smoke weed with one of the guys who was a little bit of a bookworm, and they would hang out with someone who was a sophomore. And this movie is more defined by how at least I felt when high school where. Your your classman status, you know, if you're a freshman or if you're a senior or if you're a junior, everything was defined by that. It wasn't so much defined by, you know, who you hung out with. And there's like this lasting uh, impression that I get from this movie that even though it takes place in the 70s and even though I watched it in the 90s, when I watch it now, it still feels very, very timeless.
2: I found myself watching it and getting duped, even though I know it was made in 93 that it looks so 70s. It really has that honest vibe. And it's not like how the 70s were. It's the idealized version. And it really does have that feel. Everything in Dazed and Confused is from Richard Linklater's point of view, from his experience, from his stories that he remembers hearing of people that he went to high school with or friends of friends. Everything in it comes from direct experience or someone else's experience. So I think all of these themes that run throughout many high school movies are universal. And that's why something like Dazed and Confused someone can feel while watching it, oh yeah, this was my high school. I went through this. But it's that we all experience, you know, rejection and insecurity and straight up boredom half the time. And when a movie, whether it's in the 90s or the 70s, probably before, I don't know, before the age of cell phones and social media, everyone did have the same experience. So when watching this film, you can feel like it is aimless or plotless, but it is the most plotless movie that totally has a plot and multiple relatable stories that I know I've experienced or have at least watch someone else experience. This whole idea of a teenager roaming, almost, you know, finding, um, whether they're cruising the streets with their friends, or they're just hanging out. I don't know how many times, I mean, Justin, I don't know about you, but I I can remember not so much maybe in middle school, but in high school, there is so much hangout time. That's all I wanted to be doing, even while in school. I tried to just hang out and, you know, the later that it got in my, in my high school years, I kind of tried to blow off what I could.
1: Well, yeah, and I think this idea of when when you're younger, um, boredom sets in. You know, as, as we get older and our lives get busier, I, a lot of times I find myself thinking, man, I, would l- I can't remember the last time I was bored, but that just sounds absolutely <laughs> wonderful right now. If I had <laughs> yeah, so much time on my hands that I was just like bored you know all day long just like desperately trying to do anything to entertain myself and Richard Linklater the the point that he makes in this movie that he drives home time and time again is that idea of this is the time when these characters are the most free yet they have the most restrictions put on them by grown-ups and by society but when they look back on this time period You know, they'll see, oh, this is when I did have the least amount of responsibility and the most amount of freedom of like my big priority for this week is like going out. We're going to party. We're going to get stoned. We're going to hang out with my friends. And that's like the most important responsibility that I have in my life right now. That's what that's the most that that's what means the most to me. Whereas later, you know, you've got a job, you've got mortgage, you've got wife, you've got kids. (laughs) um, The list goes on and on. And it's funny to me that Linklater started this with the idea, this concept of he didn't want, you know, he looked at a movie like American Graffiti that idolized that time period of the 60s and was like, no, man, the 60s were, you know, there was war, there was uh, racism, people were fighting each other. It was not this iconic time, but this idea started setting in, you know, of his generation of nostalgia, you know, and this built in nostalgia of the time period and going back to that period. And in your mind thinking like, Oh no, this was the best time of my life. And it's funny to me that he approached days of confused with that idea of like, I'm, you know, I think he called it the anti nostalgia movie and tried to make a movie that was not going to be like American graffiti, but you know, the movie, you, you can't, you can't fight that. You can't make a movie about a place in time with teenagers and, like, put a soundtrack on it of, of of music of that time period that people naturally have nostalgia to. And when you hear experts talk about nostalgia, they say it's usually formed from that time when you're young, you know, where you felt the most—you yeah. were the most impressionable. And this movie, to me, like, just bleeds nostalgia. He did set, set out to make a more serious tone film. Uh, this is one of those movies that— Wanted to be a party movie, and I think he said something like the original cut of this was three and a half hours. He had darker tones in the script that they didn't shoot, but there was actually darker stuff in the movie that they cut out. And eventually, as time went on, when they were cutting the film, the movie sort of showed itself as no, this is a lighter movie that isn't a laugh out loud comedy. I mean, there's funny elements to it, but I wouldn't go as far as to call this a comedy, even though. I think that there's a lot of humorous things in it, but it is a, a, a hang movie. It is a party movie. That's not the movie I think that he necessarily set out to make, but the idealisms in the movie and the characters that he wanted are were intact, you know, at the end of at the end of the film.
2: And for some people, this movie, myself included, I mean I didn't have to go through any hazing rituals, but there are some things in this film that seem completely foreign by today's standards, but something like the severe paddling and hazing and bullying and squirting Freshman girls with condiments and oil, like all of this initiation into the next step of your school life. These were things that really did happen. And they're depicted in this film, not necessarily in a funny way. There are plenty of funny lines that happen and plenty of moments that you find yourself laughing. But Linklater is not poking fun at it. If anything, he's bringing some truth to exposing what he saw. And I think that that's something that can be jarring when maybe someone who hasn't seen this movie before, who's not over, you know, 35 and can say, yeah, yeah, that totally, that was a thing that happened. But it can be jarring looking back on this film and, and watching it today. It was, for a lot of truths that this movie brings to life, the bullying and the brutality of hazing is something that you don't really see that often if at all in movies today.
1: His approach to the bully scenes in this are kind of sadistic in a way because the town and he and he himself said, "I was the Adam Goldberg and Anthony Rapp character where I thought it was crazy that they were doing this and he said, you know, when he became a senior, you know, he his class was like, "Let's not do this. Let's not carry on this tradition where we're like beating kids." all summer with paddles. Linklater doesn't use these scenes as some way to, to make fun. I mean, he's he kind of shows a lot of the things that are dark about high school and when the teachers or the town isn't jumping in and saying hey you know this is this is taking it too far everybody's kind of watching the the fact that everybody's watching and having a good time seeing all these kids get abused is what makes the <laughs> the scene so dark <laughs> you know it's like you're like oh yeah. god this is like horrific but to me it still gives the movie a, an extra punch because the fact that you know we see the character Mitch go through this he gets a brutal paddling by like four dudes that all none of them really look like they're in high school. They all look like they're like 25, like hitting them as hard as he can. He looks terrible at the end of that scene. He looks humiliated and he's like crying, but he is a kid. And when the Jason London character offered, you know, is he's the one out of all of them that doesn't hit him with a paddle. And he says, hey, come out tonight and hang out with us. And the Mitch character's like, is that is that okay? He's like, yeah, yeah, you know. The other guys will, will take it easy on you and, you know, it'll look good for you to not let them know that it bothers you. And that's such a high school thing, like a such a yeah. high school way to rationalize something. It rings so true. And I think time and time again in this movie, you see these characters make these decisions that you don't question them because you're like, no, that that tracks, you know, a 15 year old mind, a 16 year old mind. It's like, yeah, that those that's the kind of decision making skills, you know, that I had at that time
2: the same things for the incoming freshman girls. Instead of hitting them with paddles, they're humiliating them and doing degrading awful things to them in front of other people. So in the same way that the football guys are doing this to Mitch, the the newbie freshman, the cheerleaders are also saying, all right, come on, hang out to the one girl that they've picked to like hang out with them and make it not be a big deal. But we even see later with that character of Sabrina, the incoming freshman, that torment doesn't end. It doesn't stop at that day. And we see that that abuse still continues on. And I, we could go deep on this, on how, you know, we shape young minds in high school and how that behavior is something that's learned and passed on. But that's not kind of like the point of this. The point is to just show the brutal truth of what teenagers can be like.
1: In the way that the characters interact, like the character of Pink, who he's the the quarterback, but he's constantly annoyed that the coach is trying to get him to sign this pledge that he's not going to abuse drugs or alcohol, and he's feeling super oppressed. His girlfriend calls him out and says, "You act like you're so oppressed. You're like the king of the school. You're like everybody treats football players like gods." But he doesn't want to have these rules. You know, he's he doesn't want to feel like he's already stuck in this hierarchy. Because he, you know, he already went through it as a freshman, you know, he already has been spent three years like having people tell him what to do and say, no, you're a freshman, you can't do this. Now you're on the football team, you have to do this. And that to me, you know, as a as a movie that has been described as plotless, like we said, that to me is a huge plot part of this movie. Because yeah, yeah. All, all a lot of these characters are dealing with that same thing. You have the character, the Randall Pink Floyd character dealing with this pledge, but then you also have. The the Mike character Adam Goldberg who also feels like his group of friends feel like they're they need to get out of this small minded town. I mean this they're they're not living in the big city. This whole high school mm-hmm. takes place in a small Texas town. And Richard Linklater was a star. A football player and baseball player, but he was also a pretty heady kind of guy, and he was also a guy that didn't want to live in a small town his whole life. You know, he wanted to move on and go to bigger cities and experience different things and meet different people that weren't the the same as he was. And to me, that there's there's little subplots flowing throughout this whole movie. And I think they come full circle, too, because everybody by the end of the night finds a little bit of something that they're looking for, that they're searching for.
2: And even with the harsh things that happen in this, I don't think that it's about that necessarily. It's about how we take it all in. And at, at the end, when many of the main characters are laying on the football field, there's the crux of this existential uh, part of the plot that still is the kernel of the movie, And that when you... Look back. You know, you want to be able to say, I did as best as I could. I played as hard as I could. And I, you know, had as most fun as I could while I was forced to be stuck in this place. And I think that that is the overall idea of this movie. And that's where, even with the brutality that's involved, it's not a mean spirited type of thing. It's the truth of what so many high schoolers go through. And you see that from the beginning from the initiation into high school with the eighth grader, Mitch, and Sabrina, and where we have all of these juniors that are now going into their final year. This isn't, again, this is not a graduation movie. This is just a last day of school moving on, which is something that really didn't also exist in the teen movie genre. But it is this coming-of-age idea of growing, of becoming an adult.
1: And this movie hit at a unique time. Teen movies had kind of, like, died out. Probably, like, the last teen movie was Say Anything that came out in 89. But even that movie was kind of trying to shift what a teen movie was. You know, it was trying to be a little more introspective and trying not to make it all about the teen experience, you know, looking ahead, looking toward the future. Much different, you know, than the movies of the... The sort of teen sex comedies of the 80s, which, you know, they just made so many of to a point of just ridicule. And in 1993, when this came out, there really wasn't anything like it. A couple years later, we had a long line of of teen comedies, um, which actually kind of kicked off very much how they did in the 80s with Amy Heckerling doing Clueless, like how she did started, you know, the trend with uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. To me, still, Days of Confused kind of sticks out differently because it doesn't really uh, tie itself down to any tropes. They don't get any all that sort of silly, stereotypical stuff that we had seen in teen movies. And I, a lot of the reason why I think is because Richard Linklater has, was already mature when he was in high school and he was 31 when he made this movie. So he was out of that realm for you know almost a decade and a half by the time he started making Days of Confused. I honestly believe that's why there's this more mature outlook on what teenage life is. And he was still young enough to connect with the young actors in this movie to sort of give them guidance on saying, you know, you guys are closer to this, closer to that high school experience than I am, but let's work together and make this a movie that that is relatable and I really think that that was the the greatest strength of this movie is like Linklater really connecting with these young actors, this huge ensemble cast in helping shape this into the movie that it became, which is, you know, a real deal, real life feeling of what high school is like and having this a night that sticks out in your mind that, you know, you do that you do think back on and you know, not necessarily in a cliche way of saying it was the best night of my life, but, you know, that time in your life where you're reminiscent of something and you can always look back to it and feel young for a moment.
2: You know, you mentioned the the teen sex comedies of the 80s. One thing that's incredible about this film is that there's no sex in it. It's only making out, really. And it might feel feel hypersexual, but that's also kind of what high school is like. Yeah, sure, there are kids that are having sex, and it's certainly implied in in some scenes, but it's not about that. It's not about sex. And along with that, as this movie was kind of marketed as a stoner movie, as a drug movie, whatever, the thing that I love about the whole idea of like smoking weed in this movie, because everyone pretty much smokes weed. It is used as a conversational piece, something that is insightful and makes people that maybe even wouldn't interact in different groups talk to each other as something that causes almost a revelation. And with the idea of this being a cruising movie, all it is is talking. All it is is dialogue and people interacting. And the idea of using weed To facilitate some of these conversations, whether it is like the stoner car or the more brainy kids car, they're all having the same conversations, the same deep conversations. They're just happening in different in different ways. And the way that weed is used in this movie, I don't consider this a stoner movie, really. It just happens to be all throughout the film.
1: I don't consider this a stoner movie either. I I do find it hilarious that when this movie came out in the 90s, the drug use in this movie to me, uh, I thought was like wild because I smoked weed in high school and I knew a lot of people that did. But you weren't really out in the open about it all the time because it was still kind of frowned upon, you know, like you wouldn't just openly be like, yeah, tonight, you know, I've got my joint and you have it behind your ear, like how open they are in days of confused about it. I was thinking like, Oh man, that must've been the seventies. Like everybody smoked weed. (laughs) But what's more funny to me now is like now watching this movie in year 2021, so many people smoke weed and pots like deregulated and it's out in the open and you can go and buy it in stores and hemp is used for so many things. To me, it feels more relatable in the sense of like, Oh yeah. If someone came over and they like, Hey, I'm going to walk out to your back patio and, and, toot this thing real quick is that okay oh yeah sure you know i mean it's not that big of a deal and i think it's like we've come full circle to where drug you you know marijuana uses is, is uh out in the open like it was in the 70s and how it's portrayed in days of confused
2: in the drinking age in days and confused in texas in 76 was 18 so there's there's a lot of aspects that were different and the whole idea of adults adults are background characters in this movie. It is straight up just about the high school kids and, you know, the Woodersons, the older guys hanging out too.
1: So to pivot back to Richard Link later, he started out his career as he started his life like these characters. This was his life. Um, but he left that small town of Huntsville in, you know, got a job working on an oil rig, made some money, did not want to be working a nine to five job. Moved to Austin, Texas. It was like a very sleepy town in the '80s, and a lot of artists there, a lot of musicians, and wanted to make films. You know, self-taught, made a made a feature on Super 8, and then realized I want to make a feature that I can show to people. And at that time, if you were indie filmmaker, there wasn't like video cameras that you could shoot a feature on. It you know you had to buy film, shoot on 16 millimeter. Hopefully get into a festival that was a start of like festivals becoming big, but he made a very low budget movie called slacker that he shot for about $25,000 did a self distribute at a movie theater in Austin and it was all shot with local Austin people local Austin crew uh, totally outside of, of Hollywood outside of anything. And because it was so outside of, of life that people were used to seeing in movies, it it had like a little bit of a following. After a while, he was able to get a distribution deal with Orion to put the movie out. And it was a tiny success. It wasn't, you know, this huge smash thing, but it was a movie that, you know, played in some theaters and, you know, made a made a couple million dollars for a movie that was made for 25000 and got him the attention of a couple of producers who really thought that, uh, you know, he had a unique voice and the word slacker kind of entering into pop culture, you know, sort of a bohemian artist lifestyle, people living in the city. You had the anemones of a city, um, but you also weren't like hustling, like trying to do a nine to five job. And it's like all these people who are like, you know, in their mid to late 20s that aren't so much worried about a career it's it's interesting because you kind of see that shift like the idealism of slacker and in, in that early 90s melees in Austin is sort of describe, you know, you can kind of see it in the new generation of people. Like they don't want to just jump into a career. They want to figure out who they are and figure out what they like. Not just, uh, once they graduate high school, say I'm going to college and then I'm going to, you know, start trying to figure out a way to make money in my chosen career and just do that till I die. That view of life, um, was important to Linklater. He showed that in Slacker and then, you know, started having this idea of like going further back to his high school days and and how he felt about things and how that town worked and again with all the hazing and everything and started working on the script for Dazed and Confused. Richard Linklater got the attention of John Pearson who was a film rep at the time. Like He had helped Michael Moore get uh, his movie Roger Me Sold. He helped Spike Lee sell She's Gotta Have It. He was the one who helped Richard Linklater get a distribution deal with Orion. Uh, John Pearson also went on to help uh, Kevin Smith sell Clerks. He was an early fan and early cheerleader for Richard Linklater, who then got the attention of a couple of producers who were starting their careers. They had worked with the Coen brothers, Jim Jacks was a early fan of Richard Linklater, who basically uh, was his gateway into getting a deal with Universal Pictures to write and direct. Days of Confused.
2: All right. So once there's a little bit of a buzz behind Richard Linklater, he ends up getting a meeting with uh, the head of Universal through Jim Jacks. So he goes into the meeting and just starts telling the story about his movie, talking about the characters, the story arcs, not really knowing what a pitch is necessarily, but trying to sell the idea. And he's very impassioned, and they can tell that there's something behind this guy. And Linklater went into this knowing that the head of Universal was also a fan of American graffiti. So he sold it in saying, this is like a 70s American graffiti. So with this passion behind it, that idea, Universal gives this kind of guy out of nowhere six, seven million dollars and says, okay, let's get this ball rolling. With that said, Linklater was also able to get many of the crew members that he worked with in Austin on Slacker involved on Dazed and Confused. And he felt that shooting Dazed in LA just wasn't going to work. So he wanted to take the production to Austin and they okayed that too. And another thing that was important was getting cinematographer Lee Daniel involved in this movie, too. They had worked on Slacker together. They were friends, roommates, like just had the best working relationship. And he was very comfortable working with him. And being an independent writer director entering the studio world, this like big production atmosphere that he's not used to, he needed. To feel more comfortable and needed to have that sense of being able to retain control. And it was really good that he had this idea to start out with because this was the beginning of an uphill battle.
1: And how this started was very positive. Link later is able to shoot the movie in Austin where he's comfortable. He's able to get. Um, Some Austin crew that he's worked with before mixed with L.A. based crew seems to have full support of producer Jim Jacks. The studio seems excited about the idea of having a possible new American graffiti on their hands and everything seems great until they get into production he doesn't like to go into too many details about the production of days confused but he does say that it, it was a everyday battle like he said every single day he fought with jim jacks over making their time getting the shots that he wanted jim Jacks, a producer constantly was wanting him to cut things from the script stuff that link felt was important for the story And I think Linklater describes it great in the way of saying, sometimes you can only be a, a few bad decisions away from having a bad movie on your hands. And I make, as a director, that's all you do is making, you're making decisions all day. And the studio was kind of bending his hand and making decisions for him, which was affecting the vision that he wanted. And the whole reason why he got into this thing, you know, got into, to bed with the studio. And, through the entire production, there's many times where he did fight and he did win some battles uh, with the studio, some battles he lost. Uh, for example, there's a, a very, what I think is to be a very pivotal scene in the movie where after the uh, Mitch plays the baseball game in the beginning of the film, the scene before he gets paddled by the seniors, the baseball team does the good game, good game, good game where you, you do like the, the side high five and... That is just such a distinct memory that anybody who has played Little League or baseball, uh, you recognize that. Or if you've seen a Little League game, and Jim Jackson producer was like, No, we're cutting that. We don't need it. And, Linklater was told at lunch, like, yeah, we're cutting that scene. And to Linklater, that was the whole reason they were out there. That was the most pivotal scene to shoot. And so he fought and won that battle. And I can only imagine how loose that scene would feel if it just cut from him striking somebody out to cutting to him getting paddled, not seeing that moment in between that, that we've all experienced if we played sports.
2: Yeah. And that scene was all about building up tension. That scene and many others all it took was the script supervisor being like, yeah, actually, we need to shoot that or else it's not going to cut together if we do, if we put these two scenes together. And all of a sudden, Jim Jacks was like, fine, we'll find the time. And this played into the overarching idea that Linklater was just kind of not respected by the producers. And this is what I meant by this uphill battle, just like constant. If it wasn't arguing for scenes like this, it was about... There's too much cursing involved, but Linklater was thinking, well, these are teens. They curse. That's what they do, and, and it's going to be a lot, but Jim Jax was so, so serious about this movie not being R-rated, but it just wasn't going to happen. He wanted it to be a PG-13 movie so it could hit a more broad audience, but it just wasn't the vibe of the reality that Linklater was going for.
1: And there are many times during the production where Linklater felt that, you know, he just didn't have the the backing and the support and the enthusiasm from Universal Pictures anymore. Um, he said seemingly it almost felt like they wanted to, to sabotage the movie and, and not have it come out and not have it be good. And re- really kind of taking all the hope that he had, you know, of this being, oh, this is going to be this great experience working with the studio And he's you know, he's gone on to do so many movies. I mean, he's he's done several like independently financed movies as well as studio features. um, some that, you know, had big budgets, much bigger than Days and Confused. But he said he's never had it harder than when he worked on Days and Confused. He said he kind of felt like, you know, it was ironic because he was going through this sort of hazing ritual that Mitch experiences of like a freshman coming into high school. He was having that as this independent filmmaker coming into working within the studio system. And he said, every time he, he gets on a new movie set and he kind of starts thinking about days of confused, he kind of gets like the heat on the back of his neck, you know, sort of getting angry, thinking about how hard it was, you know, getting that movie made. It's kind of shocking to me because, uh, in interviews, you know, he said he doesn't even, he said that he ranks, Days of Confused among his movies of like in the middle at best of movies that he thinks that he's proud of that, you know, that he thinks are his best films, man, I find that really wild, because I, I still think, I mean, Link later has done so many great movies, I love uh, him as a director, but I I still think Days of Confused is uh, is up there amongst, you know, his top three best movies.
2: Yeah, of course that's going to be really loaded when you come at this movie and you have to hack the script basically in half and cut out so much that you put into it and the studio tells you it needs to be faster, funnier, and stupider. Like, how, really? That's what you want? (laughs) So for him, he made a lot of concessions for this movie. In the end, it sounds like from interviews that... He got the best out of what was available. But would he probably have kept it? a lot of things in that he wanted to? Yeah, probably about like 20% more.
1: In interview after interview with Linklater... Uh, He really doesn't have too many fond memories of the actual production of this movie or working with Universal Studios. uh, So much so that even the day before Days of Confused was released, he wrote a tell-all diary-based article that was printed in the Austin Chronicle. And, uh, you know, this was was pre-internet. If that was printed nowadays it would be on top page of variety, like, you know, an hour later, like the story would get picked up. Austin was a small city at the time. Uh, Richard Linklater wasn't a huge name. So, you know, it, it felt safe to do so. I can't imagine anybody doing that now. And I think it's something that he regretted at the time. But, you know, he kind of ripped on the studio and ripped on the experience. The one positive thing, though, he did have to say about Days of Confused was working with the young and talented cast. Um, he said that was the pure pleasure. And he said for them, it was great because he said it seemed like they were having the times of their lives. They didn't have all the pressure on their backs like he did is trying to keep this movie afloat. He did have nothing but great things to say about uh, working with this cast and we'll get into that we're gonna stop for a moment we'll go to another clip from days of confused but we'll come back and talk about richard linklater working with the cast and this uh ensemble group of up-and-coming stars that uh you see in so many movies today
0: found that in the glove compartment man well, you know you're the third person who's giving me this today god but what do you reckon you're gonna do I don't know, man. I'll probably end up signing. I just don't want to give in so easy. Man, it's the same bullshit they tried to pull in my day. You know, if it ain't that piece of paper, some other choice they are gonna try and make for you. You gotta do what Randall Pink Floyd wants to do, man. Let me tell you this. The older you do get, the more rules are gonna try to get you to follow. (laughs) You just gotta keep living, man. (laughs) L-I-V-I-N. Man, if you're going to sign that paper, man, you should throw a little grass right in the middle, man. Roll it up, sign the joint, man. That's going to tell him something. That's what I'll do. Yeah. Uh, Assholes. Yeah, it's a lot. They're all a bunch of assholes. But you got to think about it. We've had a lot of really good times right here, Pink. Yeah, I mean, come on, Pink. I can't believe this. You act like you're so oppressed. Man, you guys are kings of the school. You get away with whatever you want. What are you bitching about? Look, all I'm saying is that if I ever start referring to these as the best years of my life, remind me to kill myself.
1: So, Lindsay, is is this our largest ensemble cast we've ever talked about, or was Magnolia bigger than this one?
2: I really feel like this is bigger than Magnolia. This is a good 25 or 26 people that have, you know, almost equal screen time.
1: Well, I think everybody in this movie is excellent, but we're going to have to pare this discussion (laughs) down so that we don't stretch this thing up to three hours talking about every single cast member in the movie.
2: Yeah. Kind of like what we had to do with Magnolia, but we'll group these actors together by kind of their class in high school. Even though everybody mingles together, the way to talk about this is to kind of define them by their group.
1: And like we said in the beginning, this was a launching pad for a lot of these actors, like some, a few that are huge now, like Ben Affleck This was one of his first few movies. Uh, This was Matthew McConaughey's first film, which is nuts. What a performance.
2: A performance that wasn't even originally as large as it is in the finished product.
1: Yeah, let's start there. McConaughey's uh, role was like just a few lines once he took on the role, just they realized like it was it was kind of one of those things where it clicks with everybody, like the cast and the crew are like, Yeah, this guy's like amazing, like we have to do more <laughs> with this character. And so Richard Link later just started writing more and more stuff for, for Matthew McConaughey to do, putting him in more scenes and we'll talk about Sean An- Andrews Pickford in a little bit here. But uh, originally he was in Pickford Sean Andrews was in more of the movie, but once uh, some stuff happened with him they wanted him in the movie less, and so they kind of filled that space, that empty empty space with uh, the Wooderson character. Matthew McConaughey, an actor that was so, you know, his character was so good, came to life that they wanted him in more scenes of the movie. So uh, he went from having a few lines to becoming really a central character, and I think one of the most memorable characters that people really love in this movie.
2: Yeah, he's on some of, some of the posters for this film, and for someone that had a couple lines— and wasn't even intended to be a main character. He's kind of one of the random people. He's not one of the high schoolers. He's supposed to be an older guy that's hanging out with the high schoolers, kind of being smarmy, looking for freshman girls, with the classic line that Richard Linklater says he can't believe he wrote, which was, I keep getting older and they stay the same age. That is a messed up line, yeah. but it is really funny. <laughs> and
1: it, he has like this like shit-eating grin on his face when he says <laughs> the line, too
2: so gross. And that stash is really working. The stash, the hips the tucked in shirt and rolled up sleeves, the hair, he's gross, but there's something that makes him kind of okay. But he borders that line of being kind of not okay, but you still want to hang out with him. You know, he knows where the party is. He's going to be fine. His
1: character, like a, a few of the characters in Dazed on, on the page, Link later said they were definitely like harder characters, like a harder small town. They weren't intended to be someone that the audience would gravitate toward of like really liking like the Parker Posey character Darla the Wooderson Matthew McConaughey character was written much more scumbaggy like kind of written as like a more raw character and he wasn't going to be in the film that much but definitely wasn't written as someone that would be so charming that audiences would forgive his <laughs> controversial um yeah ideas about uh, dating younger women
2: yeah yeah And McConaughey was discovered by the casting director just on a whim. They ran into each other at a bar, and there are a few different versions of this story I've heard, but one was that the bartender contacted Matthew McConaughey, who was a film student in Austin, and had him come down to, you know, hang out with his casting director, Don Phillips, who was doing Dazed and Confused and was also most known for casting Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And since this film was going to be the new Fast Times, this was an excellent opportunity for a film student. And McConaughey was kind of known to be a smooth talking guy. And so he came down and he and Don Phillips hit it off talking about golf, girls, liquor. And they just really seemed to hit it off. I think hung out well into the night and the morning. And Don Phillips said, hey, man, this movie I'm doing, you should come down and we've got a few more parts left. One, not very many lines, but I think you'd be perfect for it. And I mean, kind of the rest is history. And Don Phillips, as a casting director, was pretty well known for picking people out of obscurity. And at this time, we said earlier, you know, teen films weren't a big thing. There weren't really any giant teen actors or 20-something actors that were really known for holding down a movie. Don Phillips was in charge of casting this giant film. And many of these people, like we said, you know, went on to have massive, massive careers.
1: Yeah, such a great eye for casting and also wild to me, too, that I mean, because, you know, this movie didn't exactly explode when it hit screens like all these actors eventually, you know, their their careers took off. But um, it's wild to think of uh, Matthew McConaughey, he rapped on this movie, then he went and finished up his last semester of college. I'm going to go finish school. And then, you know, within <laughs> like a year, a year or two, he was a uh, household name. It's kind
2: of it's just so nuts. And Matthew McConaughey, sure, went on to become a household name. Many of these other actors didn't immediately blow up after Dazed, but they continued on in the independent film, like mid-90s boom that was happening. And that included Ben Affleck, Joey Lauren Adams, Parker Posey, and Cole Hauser. All four were part of the, you know, high school junior dude footballers and then the junior girl cheerleaders those are my standouts as far as those groups i do really love michelle burke who plays jody maybe the one character who's the lead i would say of the of the group of girls i've talked about her before in coneheads and i think that was the same year that she did coneheads as well but a lot of these actors just i mean just went from movie to movie after this not all of them was an immediate thing but they continued on doing auditions all of them really started blowing up. Oh gosh, how could I even forget to uh talk about probably my favorite, Slater, Rory Cochrane. God, that dude. I don't know. I love him too. There's so many people in this movie that are great.
1: Yeah, and so many of them that over the next two or 3 years like acted in movies together still. Parker Posey, I mean, she within like 3 or 4 years became, you know, I think like they dubbed her the queen of indie cinema. 1997 she had three movies in Sundance.
2: <laughs> And a really awesome thing to note about the characters of Darla and Simone, which are Parker Posey and Jory Lauren Adams, Richard Linklater allowed those two to come up with a number of scenes together. Now, granted, some of those scenes were cut out, but you can see those in the deleted scenes that they were filmed and were done. Linklater said that, you know, all of Dazed comes from his point of view, through his experiences, and in some ways, the female stories in this film kind of went by the wayside. It just wasn't his experience. It's not what he knew, but he drew upon influences that he had heard of at the time, but because he felt like he was kind of lacking in this department in the story and what we saw of all of these characters that we were following, he allowed Parker Posey and Joey Lauren Adams to write some of their scenes. So a lot of scenes that we see with them you know, those guys came up with them. There's one of the deleted scenes that's actually really funny, and that's those two hanging out on the hood of a car and just, like, you know, shooting the breeze. You know, they're kind of getting drunk, and it's, you know, it's pretty funny. But one of those things, you know, just a scene that was cut out just for the running time, but also says a lot about Linklater and his commitment to making the story as involved as possible and wanting to incorporate everybody's creative vision.
1: I always really like Slater. To me, is like the, the character I identify with the most. And Rory Conklin just does such a great job because he he doesn't make Slater a caricature. He's dorky, but because he he's a stoner, he can kind of like have friends in different groups. And I and I I think in high school, you know, that's what pot did you know I mean there was definitely people that this is the 90s it's like people shied away from it but it was definitely I think like uh it brought people together especially too if it was someone like oh yeah the this guy you know the are you cool man it's like yeah this guy plays football or whatever but he's cool you know he smokes
2: yeah you're right Slater hangs out with Wooderson Matthew McConaughey like the older guy he hangs out with the football guys really everybody that was a good person to be in high school if you could float around from different social group to another two of the characters that we would put in the stoner group in in this movie are played by mila jovovich and sean andrews and that being michelle and pickford their characters i was fascinated to find out had more involved in the script but because there was i don't know there's it seemed to be like sean andrews had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder and thought this movie needed to be all about he and Mila Jovovich and kind of ended up writing themselves out of it because of how he did scenes. After I heard this information, I watched the movie all the way through just to see his scenes and how he interacted with the ensemble. I don't know if, if you're into doing something like that, but really interesting. You can siphon out whatever you want from watching his performances, but compared to everybody else, it seems like he's kind of the one that's not interacting with the ensemble as much as everyone else is.
1: From what I've gathered from other cast members and and Richard Linklater and the producers and interviews, you know, he was one of those guys, like not many people were still trying to carry on the the method acting style. It just wasn't something that a lot of actors were doing anymore, but he was definitely one of those guys that annoyed people by the method acting. And then also his uh, agent was like calling Linklater like constantly and making sure that things were going good and uh, apparently sean andrews was just like a big a-hole on set and didn't get along with the other actors and, and kind of tried to uh when it was there when it was other actors turn to be in front of the camera and their scene you know he would do whatever he could in the background to like get himself noticed enormous ego and you know maybe that works once you've hit it big but uh when you're starting out that's a good way to not make friends and and you know, not <laughs> yeah. uh, to uh, have people want to work with you. And certainly he's out of all these people. I mean, he's one of the few that's been the least amount of movies. So I think if anything, it had a dramatic effect on his career in a in a negative way by his uh, behavior on set.
2: I could only imagine how maybe something like that would follow you, especially when you have a giant cast of people that you're going to be going to auditions with. You know, there's there's going to be something... That people remember when you behave like that on set.
1: And uh, not to get not to turn this whole thing into a, a gossip podcast, but <laughs> Mila Yovovich was dating Sean Anders at the time, and unfortunately, her role was reduced because you know she was kind of wrapped up in his whole attitude of things. And um, they, like you said, they kind of just stayed by themselves in the hotel, away from everybody else. And she was only sixteen at the time, and they got. They got hitched right after the movie, though her mom did have it annulled. But (laughs) when this movie was being put together, Mila Jovovich was like the only person who had really, she wasn't a name, but she had been modeling for a while and was did have a co-starring role in that reboot of The Blue Lagoon, though that movie didn't really do much. And it was unfortunate for her, though he didn't bring her down, though she's had a a tremendous career, especially with the, uh, I don't know how many Resident Evil movies they're up to now, but it's its a lot.
2: I don't think that this hurt her career whatsoever. You know, another name at the time, probably not as big as Mila Jovovich, but he had been in a fair amount of things, including Adventures in Babysitting, which we've talked about before, was Anthony Rapp. And he's one of the three, I, I think maybe my favorite group of everyone, like one of the three yeah. who what you would call maybe like the brains, like the smart kids or something. And again, everyone in this film bleeds together. So maybe these three, who are Anthony Rapp, Adam Goldberg, and Marissa Ribisi, maybe they aren't smoking weed in every scene like everyone else. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but they are still doing the same, you know, conversing, philosophizing, and deconstructing everything around them, just like every other group is. You know, and I, I love their interactions together. I love their car scenes just hanging out. I was definitely one of them. I don't. I probably would have been like the Anthony Rapp dorky character. But that group, specifically Anthony Rapp, um, those three, I really love how they interact and their whole story arc, everything, and how they blend in with the other groups in the film.
1: Yeah, I really like Adam Goldberg a lot, too. He uh, yeah, <laughs> he was in a lot of, always did kind of like sort of offbeat movies, like a lot of indie offbeat movies throughout the 90s, um, but every now and then showing up in a, a bigger ensemble cast, like a bigger budget movie.
2: He's in a new show now with Queen Latifah called The Equalizer, and I just watched it for Queen Latifah, and then I saw Adam Goldberg and thought, hey, dude, I'm totally into this. All I need is those two. I'm into that. Yeah marissa robisi i hadn't seen anything with her in it before i she's wonderful she's enchanting she's great in this film and the little parts that she and matthew mcconaughey shared together their flirtation i buy it somehow even though it is pretty weird and gross and she's probably 15 or 16 for some reason it works (laughs) their
1: exchange at the top-notch burger (laughs) drive up is uh amongst my favorite scenes, I just love their chemistry and the they're playing off of each other.
2: Like do you laugh really hard when he says, "You got a ride?" and she's yeah. in the driver's seat and she's like, "Yeah, I got my own car. That's cool. If you want to ditch those two guys that you're with and get in this car, better <laughs> like, be we'll cool or <laughs> we'll
1: worry about that later.
2: So funny. I mean but then I, she kind of starts I'm, messing
1: with her hair, like fixing it, and they're and Anthony Rapp <laughs> and Adam Goldberg are like, gross, you like him? You're like into
2: that. But he they're was nice. Sort of shocked. <laughs> I mean, really, he he had me in that scene. I would have I would have gone with that. I might have even gotten out of my car.
1: Join him for the beer bust.
2: And although everyone in this film shares the same amount of screen time, if we're going to boil it down to being one lead role, it would be the character of Pink, played by Jason London, who is the quarterback of the football team and is the lone guy that doesn't want to sign this uh, promise letter that's been sent out by the coach of the football team that says, you know, I promise not to do drugs or drink or do anything crazy over the summer. Put the team ahead of everything and just, you know, focus on next year and being in the best physical shape and have nothing but that in mind ahead. And he's the, the standout amongst all of his other friends. And they're just like, man, just sign it, just sign it, dude, just whatever, ignore it. And he has this, uh, inner struggle with that. And if we're going to have one theme that runs from the beginning to the end of the movie, it's, it's going to be that. And we have to care about pink or, the rest of everything just kind of falls apart. Pink, like the character of Slater, is another guy who floats from group to group. He can interact with anyone and be totally chill and cool. You want to hang out with him. And I like Jason London, like a lot in this film. But he is someone that is easygoing. And you kind of don't even realize that he's the lead out of everyone.
1: Like, I think he does a really great job in this movie, a very sort of understated performance, but he is in my eyes, like one of the least interesting characters simply because I think he's supposed to be basic, you know, he's supposed to be so easygoing and he does kind of float through the movie. He gives the movie its central conflict of him, you know, signing this paper, but though he gets the majority of the scenes, unfortunately, because he is that this sort of base character he doesn't get some of the interesting sort of quirks that all these other characters get that are only on screen for for little short bursts of time Um, but I still think he's like extremely like instrumental in in showing us a character who anybody can identify it's like oh he's a nice guy you know he's he doesn't go along with everybody else but yet he's still popular sort of the guy that you know, you, you'd you hope you'd have a friend like that, you know, in high school.
2: Yeah, that's very true. And Linklater said that the character of Pink is him in a lot of ways. And also another character that is him in a lot of ways is Mitch, played by Wiley Wiggins. And whenever we see Mitch and Pink interacting together, that it's like the older version of Linklater talking to the younger version on counseling him on what life is going to be like ahead. And those two characters interactions together, that's what you hope for. Pink is very kind to Mitch and isn't a terrible bully, you know, like, like we see with O'Banion and Benny, like all of these dudes that are just out there shaping their paddle out there to just whip some freshmen butts. And Wiley Wiggins for a guy that just was picked out of obscurity and austin what he does with this role is so genuine like he is a kid that i went to eighth grade with and i like the real performance it almost feels very unactor like it just feels like that's definitely a kid that i went to school with
1: he definitely seems like the most untrained actor out of all the the group of people in this movie but also gives that awkward very realistic performance it's just like he's just being himself you know on screen and he really does like a fine job of of showing an example of that of someone transitioning from uh, eighth grade into into their freshman year and then also it's a good juxtaposition of seeing him with Jason London because it's sort of implied that Jason London was like him you know he was the Wiley Wiggins character when he was coming up and so he's kind of looking out looking out after him and, and showing him the ropes. And again, Wiley Wiggins, like Jason London is another character who we get, you know, they're taking us through the motions. They're taking us through this town and through those two characters that we, we sort of get a behind the scenes of all the other people that they're interacting
2: with. And another actor that was from Austin picked kind of out of nowhere. And that is Sabrina played by Kristen Heniosa. And again, with Wiley Wiggins, Those two really, I mean, they just really embody this natural behavior of someone that is green, that is not necessarily just wanting to belong, but it's just trying to get by. And they're like good kids. And I love the innocence that Kristen brings to this role. The interaction and flirtation that happens with she and Anthony Rapp's character. It's very cute. The scene that sticks out to me with the Kristen character towards the end is at the big beer bust when there finally is a party and Darla confronts her, you know, all drunken and tells her and tells her to air raid, you know, to listen basically to your superior, your senior and do what I say. That whole scene is, I mean, I don't know to have, to have the guts to just not do what she says, knowing that she's going to make your life a living hell. And take some guts. It's a really good scene.
1: Yeah, it's just such a great ensemble, and uh, one of my favorite. He's not in the movie for very long, but uh, Nikki Kat that plays Clint. Like his his conversation with Matthew McConaughey when they're both the the cameras like angled, sort of a little lower angle, and they're they've got the hood of McConaughey's car up, and they're talking about car stuff and <laughs> later on the nikki Cat character like gets into a fight with adam goldberg and nikki kat has played a long line of these like a-hole mean spirited characters uh one of my favorites representations of that was in one of my pick of the weeks from the past uh suburbia another richard linklater film but he's really really great at uh, sort of the the whole like flexi macho guy that's going to get drunk and want to get into a fight later and I I've definitely you know knew guys like that growing up and and later on in college as well.
2: I only came here to do two things: kick some ass and drink some beer. We're almost out of beer. Like what an amazing line! So many great one-liners in this film. Lines of dialogue. Just Linklater brought his A-game to this movie.
1: Yeah, this this movie is just so quotable. Um, <laughs> it just endlessly quotable. Um, so a lot of that uh, kudos to Linklater, but also the cast for helping them yeah. piece together some of the movie's funnier scenes.
2: I think we've talked about this in a few films. We found that most times whenever a director is receptive to actors' input and adding things to their characters, it always makes for such a rich story. And one thing that Linklater did for these actors to help them realize where to go with their characters was before they started filming, he sent them mixtapes to help them realize who their character is through music. And music is so important in this film. It's another character. And in many teens' lives, especially in the 70s, 80s, 90s, I, I mean, I can't really speak for teens now, but I can definitely speak for myself. In my early formative years in high school and middle school, music meant so much to how i communicated with other people whether that was in a literal sense you know you want to make someone a mixtape and tell them how much you like them you know you did that in a mixtape and by linklater sending them mixtapes telling them who their character is through music like what a brilliant way to do this
1: it's uh i yeah i agree it's just such a genius way to to get them in in tune with their characters by giving them just like a, a very finite example of like, here's a music that your character would listen to.
2: Even from the beginning to the very final scene of this movie, there's talk about getting Aerosmith tickets. That's the final scene that we see is four of these guys like heading out to go pick up Aerosmith tickets.
1: Priority of the summer.
2: Of course it is, yeah. And Justin, have you been jamming this soundtrack like I have? It's a good two-hour long double-decker soundtrack. I love it.
1: It's it's wild because a lot of these songs I was so familiar with, you know, when Days of Confused came out already. But this was one of those soundtracks that was uh, that I bought on CD, you know, almost immediately after this movie came out. And yeah, I had been blasting a lot of 70s Uh, mid-70s, early-70s music (laughs) over the last few weeks.
2: Linklater said that about 10% of the movie's budget was to get music rights for every song that they were going to use in here. And I think he wanted to use a lot more, struggled with those in charge of putting this out, who, one, thought that a 70s soundtrack was not going to fly, was a bad idea, and there was a lot of compromising that happened behind the scenes. In the end, it came down to okay, we'll go ahead and let you use a lot of this music, but maybe we'll repeat some of the same songs or different sections of those songs. But man, one giant misstep, and Justin, I know you agree with me on this, one giant misstep that they wanted to do was have a contemporary band cover a 70s song and that be like the lead single that they could put out on MTV to promote the soundtrack, which, okay, I get it. You want something that's going to you know, be out there to get this soundtrack into kids' ears. But the thing was, was these songs were already popular. To me, that didn't really make sense and really kind of didn't go along with the whole vibe of doing a movie that was a period piece.
1: I guess I can understand from a studio marketing standpoint, you know, like we need some sort of hook and just releasing songs from the 70s Isn't enough of a hook for a movie that may or may not be successful. But the idea of yeah, just getting some like modern bands to like make to do covers of seventy songs just sounds awful. Especially again, like you said, for a movie that's a period piece. Yeah, Linklater was just fighting tooth and nail the studio nonstop over this, and eventually was like, "I'll waive my rights to to getting any money off of the album." deal as long as we can release the soundtrack is like just the music that's in the movie and uh he kept fighting with the universal over this and and i think it was sony music or with the with the music company that was putting it out and he went as far as even contacting the band that recorded one of the covers and said hey you know i don't want you guys to be on the soundtrack. I had the direction that the studio is going in and he convinced them not to. I mean, that's pretty bold and like kind of nuts, you know? Uh, and it definitely did not make the uh, studio happy, but inevitably they went with Linklater's wishes. He did not get a cut of the, of any of the percentage of the soundtrack. The album did get go double platinum. It was a huge hit. He didn't see a cent of it, but at the end of the day, there's not, you know, terrible, uh, cover versions of songs at the end the yeah. end credits which would have kind of just thinking about this movie now if it was like a cover at the end of the end credits would have just kind of been sort of terrible um yeah, it would have killed no. the, it would have killed the authentic vibe they had going for the movie so I'm glad that um yeah. things uh went as link later intended but yeah he 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 sounds uh if you read interviews with him, the whole um, release of Days Confused and the the, uh, the soundtrack was uh, just a miserable experience for him. And he just just could not understand why um, the studio did not want to work with him and, and see, see the same things that he saw, even though in the end, I mean, he was right. The album worked, the movie worked, but thankfully he uh, didn't give up and he kept on making movies because he's got so many other good movies that were... Uh, developed and, and put out through the studio systems. So.
2: Yeah, you assume if you have a, a deal with Universal that they're going to roll it out big time, but they just didn't, and there just wasn't that much enthusiasm behind it, and they marketed it as just a party movie and socially irresponsible. And I mean, who thinks in their right mind it's a good idea to put out like Roach Clips at Rolling Papers as swag to advertise a movie, that's not going to help you in any department. I mean, with a small fraction of people, yeah, it will. And other people will be like, okay, I don't want anything to do with that movie. And that's so not what the movie is about. It's not just about weed smoking. Yes, that's everywhere in it. But it's was just so mismarketed to release a movie that, is under a, a giant studio, but give it this art house independent release just seems so unfair, man. And I also don't think that they thought of an appropriate time to release the film. Linklater thought, duh, you you released this film at the end of school, like in May, June, something like that. But the studio hadn't even thought about a release date and thought, I don't know, September, something like that, which was well off from when they were had completed the film, and Linklater didn't even like that idea, so he asked if it was okay to premiere the film at the Seattle International Film Festival before national distribution happened, and it went over really well there, and it got high marks for Universal, and I think it was, as far as the films release that year for Universal, it was the second highest rated film right under Schindler's list. Like, <laughs> that's pretty wacky. That's pretty awesome, but It didn't have an L.A. premiere and just kind of dwindled because it didn't have the backing of the studio and just such an unfair tale. But thankfully, it did have a second life thanks to rentals, thanks to midnight movie screenings, and then eventually DVD releases. Uh, This movie certainly has gained popularity over the years. And every time that an actor in this film does something huge nowadays, you know you go back to where they came from so since this was the first film for some people or very early in their careers you're always going to hit on dazed and confused
1: yeah and it's it's one of those movies too that gets passed down you know from older brothers older sisters to their younger siblings and then also you always have a new crop of kids coming into high school and if they're looking for that high school movie to watch this one probably still feels more relatable than a John Hughes movie or a Fast Times at Richmond High.
2: That's the truth. I watched this back-to-back with Fast Times at Richmond High. Yeah completely different vibe. I identified way more with this than what happens in Fast Times. Not to say that it's not relatable. Certainly it is just a different manner of storytelling and what happens in it more going along the vein of being like that 80s exploitative type of film which dazed and confused is certainly not
1: yeah well let's stop there we'll come back for some final thoughts on days confused and to close things out but uh, let's move on to our picks of the week Lindsay, you did a movie that i really need to revisit and that's clock watchers what can you tell me about that one
2: well, Parker Posey has a smaller role in Dazed and Confused, but no matter what size of a part the woman has in a movie, she's always memorable. So in this 1997 Diamond in the Rough Clockwatchers, Posey is one of our four leads, also including Lisa Kudrow, Alana Ubach, and most prominently at the center as Toni Collette. Written by two sisters, Jill and Karen Sprecher, with the film directed by Jill, the level of depth given to every single character makes it easy to think that these filmmakers experienced a work environment like it's depicted in the film. The story begins with Iris, Tony Collette, beginning her temp job at a credit company. This is a job where looking busy takes up most of one's time. Iris's quiet wallflower demeanor is noticed by Margaret, Parker Posey, who swoops in to show her the reins, the shortcuts, and the tricks of getting by. Iris is accepted into a small group of temps who've bonded together out of a sense of feeling expendable, and there's a quiet contempt in place because it's well known that temps aren't highly respected in the office. Through a few moments of narrative reflection, we understand that what we're watching is in the recent past. The initial foreshadowing some mystery event really isn't distracting, it's just curious, especially while watching this office friendship develop. Between our four leads. For some viewers, watching movies is a form of escapism, a story which takes people out of reality and making them believe something completely outside the norm. Others gravitate towards movies which mirror their own reality, and oftentimes these movies quell the daily or mundane frustrations of life. Clockwatchers was not a box office smash. However, two years later, the disgruntled workplace comedy Office Space made its way into American pop culture. And while I totally enjoy that movie, Clockwatchers illustrates many of the same points, but with a biting, subversive, intelligent humor while also retaining the heart of the story, even showing character growth and reflecting on a very real reality for folks who feel invisible in the workplace. I really suggest watching these movies back to back if you're someone who's ever felt completely kept down. It's totally cathartic. The plot further unfolds by introducing an unknown thief in the office, stealing knickknacks, pens, an umbrella, a scarf, a wallet. A ton of things just keep disappearing, and immediately the unspoken idea is that it must be one of the temps doing the thieving. Doubt begins to hide itself in every corner as paranoia overtakes our four leads, while they have their own theory on who the real thief could be, but of course no one would ever believe them. They even begin to doubt each other, especially after restrictions on co-worker interactions are put in place and security cameras installed. The evolution of the story is curiously unexpected, and if you've ever been in a work situation which mirrors any aspect of this, you feel the impending doom, and also a looming notion of knowing someone innocent is going to be unfairly punished. Clock Watchers is for the undervalued, underpaid, micromanaged, misunderstood worker who's going through the motions because it's what they're supposed to do, skating by because it's not like anyone cares about your opinion, and on top of that, there's a serious theme of parental pressure, reinforcing the idea that despite your effort, you could always be doing something better. Even the visuals in this film illustrate a sense of stifling. Bright whites, rich yellows, various shades of tan and brown give the sense of a stagnant, sterile unwelcoming and strikingly boring environment and the fluorescent office lights are always an easy and perfect addition to aid in that off-putting minimalistic workplace feel even though they're outsiders it's the four temps who bring the personality to the film tony collette is always an actor who brings her a-game so her evolution of iris is a clever slow unveiling to behold the feelings brewing within her that she would have suppressed in the past before she got this temp job Parker Posey is a scene stealer in every single movie, but how the Sprecker sisters chose some misdirection for her character was a brilliant choice and forces you to question what you thought about Margaret. Alana ubach's nicely understated role of Jane helps round out the friendship dynamic, and while she's solid at being an over-the-top actor, specifically I'm referencing her in another workplace comedy Waiting, Jane is needed to complete all sides of this foursome. And as this was 1997, in the middle of America being in love with a. TV show Friends, Lisa Kudrow brings depth to the superficial role of Paula, as only she can, and does so in so many other roles. I'll always go to bat for Kudrow and how she handles comedy through her pauses and speech patterns, the seemingly ditzy yet deliberate planning. Her sense of comic timing is anything but superficial. All of these actors become their characters even when there's no dialogue, and that's aided, of course, by the Sprecker sisters' writing, showing us the little things taking place all around them. It's the little things that tell the full story. And minor roles are played by Bob Balaban, who is a jerky, neurotic version of a boss. That 70s show Deborah Jo Rupp as a by-the-book, uptight office manager. And then there's Jamie Kennedy being Jamie Kennedy as a creeper mailroom guy, as well as numerous other well-seasoned, competent comedic players. And as this is a dark comedy, you'll have to accept introspective reflection, stories of female camaraderie, and watching the tiny nuances of human interaction. Clockwatchers gives a voice to those who feel like no one would notice if they disappeared. Mostly everyone has to have some sort of a job, and if you're lucky, you get paid to do something you love. For others, it's just what you have to do. But what the Sprecher sisters are telling us is that everything is temporary, beginnings and endings happening over and over, and then begin again. But the point is to merge those experiences, good and bad and to find the inner strength that's within everyone but to stop watching the world go by. The grains of existentialism are woven into the specialness of the story, which tells a truer tale than most about the underappreciated worker who does not want to follow a predictable path, but realizes they must do so in order to get by. There just aren't any do-overs in life, just moving on. So just as those fluorescent lights in any office setting may burn into your eyes, the temps of clock watchers may just tap into the unarticulated feelings for any undervalued person.
1: Sort of the... uh Lesser-known female-fronted office space.
2: Yes, and certainly a lot of humor, but less slapsticky, I would say. And the humor is much darker. And while there's a lot of dark humor in Office Space too, it's just a different brand. Yeah, it's more more knee-slapper style. And this is you can identify with. The darkness that happens in in Clockwatchers, because a lot of people have been through it, but finding the humor in familiar situations. The the funny it's because it's true sort of tone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think it's your turn to tell me about your pick of the week, Justin.
1: So my pick was Lone Star, written and directed by John Sayles. Um, I've always loved John Sayles' movies, even though sometimes they can be a little heavy handed and slow. This movie, I feel like, is his best film. Lone Star is an absolutely fantastic movie and it's really impressive this was came out in 1996 during the big boom of independent film and sales had been a independent filmmaker since the early 80s and it's such it's such an expansive movie for a movie that only costs $3 million. It's just so rich and textured. It's a different approach for handling a murder mystery. It's definitely one of those movies, I think, that requires multiple viewings because there's so much going on and so many characters that are interwoven. The The movie bounces back between the present time of 1996 when the movie came out in 1957. The movie opens with a mystery in present day 1996 where the bones of a body are found uh, along with an old sheriff's badge. And the current sheriff, played by Chris Cooper, who has been in a lot of sales movies, he gets curious about it because they're starting to think that this was a sheriff who was mysteriously disappeared back in 1957. So Chris Cooper starts trying to figure out the mystery of what happened. They think it's the, the body of, of this old sheriff, who is a mean old man, played by Chris Christopherson and probably one of his best roles. He plays a, a, a racist, terrible just honoree sheriff. And John Sales does a really stylish way of cutting back and forth. Instead of doing flashbacks, which a lot of movies do, the camera will like pan over from a place of, of present day and kind of pan over and then they're in the same location, but it, it's in 1957. And the first time it does that, it it can kind of it's kind of jarring, but then, you you know, immediately you're like, oh, okay, this is the style. This is, it, it it's actually a pretty clever way of, of cutting back and forth between present-day 1957. We start to learn that all these characters that are in present-day were affected by decisions uh, that were made by their parents and and people from the past. Matthew McConaughey plays a very small role. He plays a sheriff that took over after Chris Christopherson disappeared, um, and he was a sheriff that everybody loved, but he also had uh, a lot of mysterious settlings going on that affected other people's lives. It's kind of hard. I don't want to give anything away because it is a, a a very tightly wound murder mystery and the stories kind of keep intersecting until you, it starts revealing all these different uh, secrets and in lies that were, were hidden by people in the past that affect people in the future. Uh, the movie deals with racism. It deals with politics. It deals with... Uh, Uh, redemption. It deals with um, how decisions parents make can affect their kids. It's really reminiscent of the movie Chinatown. This is going to be a bold thing to say, but I actually like it better than Chinatown Um, if I had to watch them back to back. And a really great measured performance by Chris Cooper, who takes a lead. It's an incredible ensemble cast, which is another reason why I kind of wanted to pair it with Days of Confused. We've got Elizabeth Pena, uh, like I said, Chris Christopherson and Matthew McConaughey, Joe Morton, a very small role by Francis McDormand. So one to really check out. If you're a fan of John Sales and you haven't seen this, it's a must-see. If you like murder mysteries, uh, this movie is very slow, but it's very interesting. It keeps you wondering what's going on, and I think it has a very satisfying ending, has a couple of nice surprises. And again, this I think it's just a perfect example of that 90s independent film movement where they would take a small budget but they would get do so much with it and focus on the acting and focus on the story and really make a very rich and interesting movies to be honest like if this movie played right now I think it would blow people away like if it came out in theaters now because you just don't see too many movies like this on the big screen but of course this movie would go straight to to Netflix or Hulu or something this is not a movie that would would show in, in theaters um, in this day and age, which is unfortunate. But um, Lone Star, it's not streaming for free anywhere, but it certainly is available to rent for like digitally for like three or four dollars.
2: Yeah, I was looking for it even in places to not pay. And I think I'm just going to bite the bullet and pay to watch it because the more that I read about it, and I was desperate actually to watch this before we did this episode, and I read so many reviews and just couldn't find one bad thing that anyone said about it just it ended up in so many people's best of lists of 96 just so many good things to say about it and the uh interconnectedness of everything and just weaving together a really interesting plot it just it sounds completely up my alley i'm really glad you did this one
1: and john sales he's an interesting filmmaker he does these uh he has like a Maybe a group of films, there's like maybe four movies that he's done where it kind of focuses on a particular state in the state itself, the culture of that state and the people are a character of the movie. And so Lone Star is very much focused on Texas or Southeast Texas near the border. But then uh, one of my favorite films of his also is Limbo that takes place in Alaska. And then he did um, Silver City, which is politics in Colorado. And then uh, he did the Sunshine State, which of course all takes place in Florida. So he, he is, he's a great filmmaker. I mean he's still have, I mean he's made so many movies there's still like probably like three or four of his that I haven't seen. but he's a great uh, director if you if you're in the mood to say, "Hey, I want to watch all the movies of a director, he doesn't have too many bad movies.:
2: Well, thank you so much for that pick. I can't wait to watch this one.: yeah.
1: Well, thank you for yours. Those are our picks, Clock Watchers and Lone Star. We stayed independent this episode. We did. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Well, here's your Murray moment.
0: Chicks dig me, because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually
1: something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal.
0: You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again?
1: Oh, what does that old
0: queen know? She didn't even show. Oh mm, my is so scrumptious. Is this hand shut? The flowing robes embrace all striking. That
1: was fun.
2: For anyone who remembers the last day of school, you know you were busting at the seams to get the summer started. And as 2020 was a year unlike any other of modern time, many kids spent their last day of school already at home, never having that year-end release and excitement. Some kids were even burnt out on being at home. No partying with your friends, no reckless throwing away of notebooks from the school year. Certainly nothing like what we see in Dazed and Confused. Though 2020 was anticlimactic for some, Leave it to Bill Murray to kick some excitement back into the last day of school for the students of St. Aloysius Elementary in Bowling Green, Ohio. Pandemic be damned. Before we get into what he did exactly, let's get to the how and why of this story. And I spoke with the principal and minister of St. Aloysius, Andrea Poole, to get to the bottom of it. Principal Poole is one of many administrators who were navigating the new reality of distance learning in 2020. Pool would upload the morning announcement video to keep the kids abreast of what was going on each day, to keep some amount of connectedness, even though the entire school was physically separated. When we went virtual, Poole said one of the students' parents got the idea to contact folks outside of school, outsource, and look for others in the community to give the morning message to students. And she remarked that maybe this was a good idea. There was only a finite amount of time she could hold the students' attention day after day. Principal Poole said a PR savvy parent first. Started started looking up sports figures, heads of teams specifically, a coach from the University of Michigan, another from Ohio State, and some NFL connections, and they were even able to nab Olympian Scott Hamilton to do the morning message for students. And all of these folks had some connection to the school or the surrounding community. The parent helping in this endeavor was holding out for one person, but was reluctant for the longest time in saying who it was, in case it didn't pan out. But then Principal Poole heard these words. I just talked to Bill Murray, and he's going to do it. But how did Billy get involved with this one? Well, remember me talking about his sister, Sister Nancy Murray, back in episode 63? Well, as it turns out, a previous communications director at St. Aloysius now worked for the Sisters of the Dominican in Adrian, Michigan, where Sister Nancy has resided since 1966. So Sister Nancy was contacted, receptive to the idea, and kept trying to pin her brother down to record a video message for the school— Well, it eventually worked. Billy's recorded morning video message arrived the same morning it was due to go out. And turning in a homework assignment at the last minute sounds very Murray-like. It was a bit of a nail-biting wait for Principal Poole. And what the man turned in was so very special. Good morning, cowpokes. Just another doofus calling in to say good morning to you, but it's kind of special because it's the last day of school. To celebrate the end of this unorthodox school year, Billy suggests the students do something cathartic to cleanse and ready themselves for what's ahead. He asked them to write down what they thought about the whole year, their classmates, what they learned about them, what it was like to be away from them and their teachers, being around their parents all the time, the coronavirus, how that made them feel, and citing that 2020 was unlike any year other students had experienced— Just write it down and see what comes out, and just take the whole day to think about it and do it. Then stand up, read it out loud to yourself, and then set it on fire, or rip it to shreds and respectively dispose of it as confetti, you know, or washing it down the sink, he also suggested. He continued by saying that maybe some of the students will see their classmates over the summer, and some of them will be friends, and some of them will just be classmates. But the one thing that they have in common is that they all went through the same experience together. He then recites the peace prayer for St. Francis of Assisi, which is about being an instrument of peace instead of succumbing to darkness, despair, and doubt, and he concludes with saying, have a great day, have a great summer, have a great life. Seriously, his sincerity in this video really got to me, and I know that I'm out of touch with the elementary youths of today. So I had to ask Principal Poole if the students were even familiar or aware of Mr. Bill Murray. And she said she thought the students' parents were the most excited, but was very surprised at how familiar the kids were with him. With the pandemic, she said, I think a lot of parents were pulling out those old classic movies like Ghostbusters and Groundhog Day. And as a former kid who had clocked many hours of entertainment with the man in my elementary years, I don't know what warmed my heart more. The thoughtful message that Bill gave these kids or that he's still trending with the youth of America. Principal Poole, if you're out there listening, thank you again for speaking with me and helping positively guide the young minds of today. And hey, Sister Nancy, if you happen to hear this, thanks for getting your little brother to turn in his homework.
1: Wow, is that the most current uh, Murray moment that you've done?
2: I think so. Yeah, there have been a fair amount in the 2010 range, but yeah, none from last year. No.
1: I wasn't expecting that because the movie took place in the 70s with Days of Confused. I thought that was the route right you were going to go.
2: You know, sometimes I'm not going to lie. I mean, that was that was an avenue I explored and then kind of just stumbled across this one.
1: I still like that after three years, I, I never know what you're going to do till the, <laughs> till the
2: moment that we record. There's a moment of panic for me about three days when we start doing research in a new episode. I'm like, am I going to be able to do it this time? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe this is the time that we don't have a Murray moment. How am I going to explain this to Justin? Somehow, You always pull it off. Always pull it off.
1: (laughs) Well, did you have any final thoughts on Days Confused before we close this thing out?
2: Of course. I wanted to bring up a cast member that is so well-known nowadays, but she was very much in the background. And I really never noticed her until I started paying attention and like looking for her and Renee Zellweger is all over this film like in many scenes the camera is directly on her and I think it's because I just I I see someone that is kind of that height and blonde and I just think Joey Lauren Adams but Renee Zellweger I love seeing her in this movie she looks exactly the same now as she did then and was also really welcomed by the cast and I think she was kind of part of the main nucleus of of the cast but just didn't have as many scenes as everybody and and i think came in at the end of the casting process too so i love that renee zellweger is in this film and yet again another person whose career blew up after this movie this is a very texas heavy uh mm-hmm. podcast and then she and mcconaughey went on to do texas chainsaw massacre for the next generation classic movie what about you, Justin? What's your final thought? My final
1: thought, uh, since Days confuses is a lot about uh, nostalgia and memories and stuff. I, I, I'm i dredging up an old memory I had of living in Austin for a while. Um, in the early 2000s, I lived in Austin for about five or six years. One of the reasons why I moved there is because I was always broke because... I'm talking about every weekend. It seemed like they had some sort of special screening where they would have cast members from the movie or the director there. Richard Linklater did the, this a lot because he started the Austin Film Society, and so to raise money for that organization, he always would bring filmmaker friends in, or they'd hold premieres or whatever. But one of the movies, special feature movies that they did was they had uh, uh, outdoor screening of days confused for the 10th anniversary and got just about every cast member there to come. And it was the first time a lot of, a lot of them had seen each other. So it was like kind of like an awkward stage setup. Matthew McConaughey like people were just going nuts like he had to have like two security guards with him the whole time and like <laughs> women were like screaming like fought like trying to like almost jump over the gate <laughs> to the area that they were in but it was a lot of fun and they had a they had it in the location where they shot at the moon tower and they had uh kegs and stuff like you could buy beer, so it was like a keg party at the moon tower with a screening of days confused with the cast and crew there and link letter and Man, it was about as fun as it it sounds. I mean, I just had a blast. <laughs> if they do a 30-year anniversary for it, uh, I I'll I'd drive to Texas for that.
2: Oh, I'm hitching a ride. On that one, we'll hit up the Moon Tower. We'll hit up that reunion. We'll do Steel Magnolias. We'll do Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, Justin, this is like the Woodstock of everything to do with Days to Confuse. It's so cool that you were there.
1: We've been we've been plotting this Texas Chainsaw Massacre field trip for like 2 <laughs> years. We just need the freaking do it
2: well this is movie number three that we have a reason yeah. to to do texas i have family all over texas we have plenty of places to stay well i love that you're there i'm jealous but i'm so happy that you got to experience it it was a lot of fun
1: well we hope uh, you've enjoyed this stays confused episode if you'd like to check out more episodes please hit us up on social media or our website uh, the website is don't push pause podcast.com. we have an archive of all our old episodes and you can find out what's upcoming um, information about the podcast all kinds of goofy stuff um, sometimes <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll do like goofy videos and stuff but uh, we put those up on our instagram we've got a facebook page youtube page a twitter handle everything at don't push pause podcast and uh we'll be posting about it soon but next episode we're doing will be ghost world which i'm very excited to talk about um it'll be the uh 20th anniversary of ghost world
2: yeah i can't wait to revisit that one too
1: well that's uh that's coming up until next time i'm justin johnson
2: and i'm lindsey Raber.
1: thanks so much for listening
2: thank you guys